This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton Section 7 Anonymity and Further Counsels The end of the article which I write is always cut off, and unfortunately I belong to that lower class of animals in whom the tale is important. It is not anybody's fault but my own. It arises from the fact that I take such a long time to get to the point. Somebody the other day very reasonably complained of my being employed to write prefaces. He was perfectly right, for I always write a preface to the preface, and then I am stopped, also quite justifiably. In my last article I said that I favored three things. First, the legal punishment of deliberately false information. Secondly, a distinction in the matter of reported immorality between those sins which any healthy man can see in himself and those which he had better not see anywhere. And thirdly, an absolute insistence in the great majority of cases upon the signing of articles. It was at this point that I was cut short. I will not say by the law of space, but rather by my own lawlessness in the matter of space. In any case, there is something more that ought to be said. It would be an exaggeration to say that I hope some day to see an anonymous article counted as dishonorable as an anonymous letter. For some time to come, the idea of the leading article expressing the policy of the whole paper must necessarily remain legitimate. At any rate, we have all written such leading articles, and should never think the worse of anyone for writing one. But I should certainly say that writing anonymously ought to have some definite excuse, such as that of the leading article. Writing anonymously ought to be the exception. Writing a signed article ought to be the rule. And anonymity ought to be not only an exception, but an accidental exception. A man ought always to be ready to say what anonymous article he had written. The journalistic habit of counting it something sacred to keep secret the origin of an article is simply part of the conspiracy which seeks to put us who are journalists in the position of a much worse sort of Jesuits or Freemasons. It has often been said anonymity would be all very well if one could for a moment imagine that it was established from good motives. Suppose, for instance, that we are all quite certain that the men on the Thunderer newspaper were a band of brave young idealists who were so eager to overthrow socialism, municipal and national, that they did not care to which of them especially was given the glory of striking it down. Unfortunately, however, we do not believe this. What we believe, or rather what we know, is that the attack on socialism in the Thunderer arises from a chaos of inconsistent and mostly evil motives, any one of which would lose simply by being named. A jerry-builder whose houses have been condemned writes anonymously and becomes the Thunderer. A socialist who has quarreled with the other socialists writes anonymously 
and he becomes the thunderer. A monopolist who has lost his monopoly and a demagogue who has lost his mob can both write anonymously and become the same newspaper. It is quite true there is a young and beautiful fanaticism in which men do not care to reveal their names, but there is a more elderly and a much more common excitement in which men do not dare to reveal them. Then there is another rule for making journalism honest, on which I should like to insist absolutely. I should like it to be a fixed thing, that the name of the proprietor, as well as the editor, should be printed upon every paper. If the paper is owned by shareholders, let there be a list of shareholders. If, as is far more common in this singularly undemocratic age, it is owned by one man, let that one man's name be printed on the paper, if possible, in large red letters. Then, if there are any obvious interests being served, we shall know that they are being served. My friends in Manchester are in a terrible state of excitement about the power of brewers and the dangers of admitting them to public office. But at least if a man has controlled politics through beer, people generally know it. The subject of beer is too fascinating for anyone to miss such personal peculiarities. But a man may control politics through journalism, and no ordinary English citizen know that he is controlling them at all. Again and again in the lists of birthday honors, you and I have seen some Mr. Robinson suddenly elevated to the peerage without any apparent reason. Even the society papers, which we read with avidity, could tell us nothing about him except that he was a sportsman or a kind landlord or interested in the breeding of badgers. Now I should like the name of that Mr. Robinson to be already familiar to the British public. I should like them to know already the public services for which they have to thank him. I should like them to have seen the name already on the outside of that organ of public opinion called Tootsie's Tips, or the Boy Blackmailer, or Nosy Nose, that bright little financial paper which did so much for the empire and which so narrowly escaped a criminal prosecution. If they had seen it thus, they would estimate more truly and tenderly the full value of the statement in the society paper that he is a true gentleman and a sound churchman. Finally, it should be practically imposed by custom. It so happens that it could not possibly be imposed by law, that letters of definite and practical complaint should be necessarily inserted by any editor in any paper. Editors have grown very much too lax in this respect. The old editor used dimly to regard himself as an unofficial public servant for the transmitting of public news. If he suppressed anything, he was supposed to have some special reason for doing so, as that the material was actually libelous or literally indecent. But the modern editor regards himself far too much as a kind of original artist who can select and suppress facts with the arbitrary ease of a poet or a caricaturist. He makes up the paper as man makes up a fairy tale. He considers his newspaper solely as a work of art meant to give pleasure, not to give news. He puts in this one letter because he thinks it clever. He puts in these three or four letters because he thinks them silly. 
He suppresses this article because he thinks it wrong. He suppresses this other and more dangerous article because he thinks it right. The old idea that he is simply a mode of the expression of the public, an organ of opinion, seems to have entirely vanished from his mind. Today the editor is not only the organ, but the man who plays on the organ. For in all our modern movements we move away from democracy. This is the whole danger of our time. There is a difference between the oppression which has been too common in the past and the oppression which seems only too probable in the future. Oppression in the past has commonly been an individual matter. The oppressors were as simple as the oppressed and as lonely. The aristocrat sometimes hated his inferiors. He always hated his equals. The plutocrat was an individualist. But in our time even the plutocrat has become a socialist. They have science and combination and may easily inaugurate a much greater tyranny than the world has ever seen. On the Cryptic and the Elliptic Surely the art of reporting speeches is in a strange state of degeneration. We should not object, perhaps, to the reporters making the speeches much shorter than they are, but we do object to his making all the speeches much worse than they are. And the method which he employs is one which is dangerously unjust. When a statesman or philosopher makes an important speech, there are several courses which the reporter might take without being unreasonable. Perhaps the most reasonable course of all would be not to report the speech at all. Let the world live and love, marry and give in marriage, without that particular speech, as they did in some desperate way in the days when there were no newspapers. A second course would be to report a small part of it, but to get that right. A third course, far better if you can do it, is to understand the main purpose and argument of the speech, and report that in clear and logical language of your own. In short, the three possible methods are first, to leave the man's speech alone, second, to report what he says, or some complete part of what he says, and third, to report what he means. But the present way of reporting speeches, mainly created, I think, by the scrappy methods of the Daily Mail, is something utterly different from both these ways, and quite senseless and misleading. The present method is this. The reporter sits listening to a tide of words which he does not try to understand, and does not, generally speaking, even try to take down. He waits until something occurs in the speech which for some reason sounds funny, or memorable, or very exaggerated, or perhaps merely concrete. Then he writes it down and waits for the next one. If the orator says that the premier is like a porpoise in the sea under some special circumstances, the reporter gets in the porpoise even if he leaves out the premier. If the orator begins by saying that Mr. Chamberlain is rather like a violoncello, the reporter does not even wait to hear why he is like a violoncello. He has got hold of something material, and so he is quite happy. The strong words all are put down. The chain of thought is left out. If the orator uses the word donkey, down goes the word donkey. If the orator uses the word damnable, down goes the word damnable. 
They follow each other so abruptly in the report that it is often hard to discover the fascinating fact as to what was damnable or who was being compared with a donkey. And the whole line of argument in which these things occurred is entirely lost. I have before me a newspaper report of a speech by Mr. Bernard Shaw, of which one complete and separate paragraph runs like this. Capital meant spare money over and above one's needs. Their country was not really their country at all, except in patriotic songs. I am well enough acquainted with the whole map of Mr. Bernard Shaw's philosophy to know that those two statements might have been related to each other in a hundred ways. But I think that if they were read by an ordinary intelligent man, who happened not to know Mr. Shaw's views, he would form no impression at all, except that Mr. Shaw was a lunatic of more than usually abrupt conversation and disconnected mind. The other two methods would certainly have done Mr. Shaw more justice. The reporter should either have taken down verbatim what the speaker really said about capital, or have given an outline of the way in which this idea was connected with the idea about patriotic songs. But we have not the advantage of knowing what Mr. Shaw really did say. So we had better illustrate the different methods from something that we do know. Most of us, I suppose, know Mark Antony's funeral speech in Julius Caesar. Now Mark Antony would have no reason to complain if he were not reported at all, if the daily pillum or the morning fasces or whatever it was confined itself to saying, Mr. Mark Antony also spoke or Mr. Mark Antony, having addressed the audience, the meeting broke up in some confusion. The next honest method, worthy of a noble Roman reporter, would be that since he could not report the whole of the speech, he could report some of the speech. He might say, Mr. Mark Antony, in the course of his speech, said, When that the poor have cried Caesar hath wept, ambition should be made of sterner stuff. In that case, one good, solid argument of Mark Antony would be correctly reported. The third and far higher course for the Roman reporter would be to give a philosophical statement of the purport of the speech, as thus, Mr. Mark Antony, in the course of a powerful speech, conceded the high motives of the Republican leaders and disclaimed any intention of raising the people against them. He thought, however, that many instances could be quoted against the theory of Caesar's ambition, and he concluded by reading, at the request of the audience, the will of Caesar, which proved that he had the most benevolent designs toward the Roman people. That is, I admit, not quite so fine as Shakespeare, but it is a statement of the man's political position. But if a Daily Mail reporter were sent to take down Antony's oration, he would simply wait for any expressions that struck him as odd, and put them down one after another without any logical connection at all. It would turn out something like this. Mr. Mark Antony wished for his audience's ears. He had thrice offered Caesar a crown. Caesar was like a deer. If he were Brutus, he would put a wound in every tongue. The stones of Rome would mutiny. See what a rent the envious casca paid. Brutus was Caesar's angel. The right honorable gentleman concluded by saying that he and the audience had all fallen down. 
That is the report of a political speech in a modern progressive or American manner, and I wonder whether the Romans would have put up with it. The reports of the debates in the House of Parliament are constantly growing smaller and smaller in our newspapers. Perhaps this is partly because the speeches are growing duller and duller. I think in some degree the two things act and react on each other. For fear of the newspapers, politicians are dull, and at last they are too dull even for the newspapers. The speeches in our time are more careful and elaborate because they are meant to be read and not to be heard and exactly because they are more careful and elaborate, they are not so likely to be worthy of a careful and elaborate report. They are not interesting enough, so the moral cowardice of modern politicians has, after all, some punishment attached to it by the silent anger of heaven. Precisely because our political speeches are meant to be reported, they are not worth reporting. Precisely because they are carefully designed to be read, nobody reads them. Thus we may concede that politicians have done something toward degrading journalism. It was not entirely done by us, the journalists, but most of it was. It was mostly the fruit of our first and most natural sin, the habit of regarding ourselves as conjurers rather than priests. For the definition is that a conjurer is apart from his audience, while a priest is a part of his. The conjurer despises his congregation. If the priest despises anyone, it must be himself. The curse of all journalism, but especially that of yellow journalism, which is the shame of our profession, is that we think ourselves cleverer than the people for whom we write, whereas in fact we are generally even stupider. But this insolence has its nemesis, and that nemesis is well illustrated in this matter of reporting. For the journalist, having grown accustomed to talking down to the public, commonly talks too low at last, and becomes merely barbaric and unintelligible. By his very efforts to be obvious, he becomes obscure. This just punishment may specially be noted in the case of those staggering and staring headlines which American journalism introduced, and which some English journalism imitates. I once saw a headline in a London paper which ran simply thus, Dobbin's Little Mary. This was intended to be familiar and popular, and therefore presumably lucid. But it was some time before I realized, after reading about half the printed matter underneath, that it had something to do with the proper feeding of horses. At first sight I took it as the historical leader of the future will certainly take it as containing some allusion to the little daughter who so monopolized the affections of the major at the end of Vanity Fair. The Americans carry to an even wider extreme this darkness by excess of light. You may find a column in an American paper headed, Poet Brown Off Orange Flowers, or Senator Robinson Shoehorns Hats Now, and it may be quite a long time before the full meaning breaks upon you. It has not broken upon me yet. And something of this intellectual vengeance pursues also those who adopt the modern method of reporting speeches. They also become mystical simply by trying to be vulgar. They also are condemned to trying always to write like George R. Sims, and succeed in spite of themselves in writing like Matterlink. That combination of words which I have quoted from alleged speech by Mr. Bernard Shaw, 
was written down by the reporter with the idea that he was being particularly plain and democratic. But as a matter of fact, if there is any connection between the two sentences, it must be something as dark as the deepest roots of Browning, or something as invisible as the most airy filament of Meredith. To be simple and not to be democratic are two very honourable and austere achievements, and it is not given to all the snobs and self-seekers to achieve them. High above even Master Link or Meredith stand those like Homer and Milton, whom no one can misunderstand. And Homer and Milton are not only better poets than Browning, great as he was, but they would also have been very much better journalists than the young men on the Daily Mail. As it is, however, this misrepresentation of speeches is only a part of a vast journalistic misrepresentation of all life as it is. Journalism is popular, but it is popular mainly as fiction. Life is one world, and life seen in the newspapers another. The public enjoys both, but it is more or less conscious of the difference. People do not believe, for instance, that the debates in the House of Commons are as dramatic as they appear in the daily papers. If they did, they would go, not to the daily paper, but to the House of Commons. The galleries would be crowded every night as they were in the French Revolution, for instead of seeing a printed story for a penny, they would be seeing an acted drama for nothing. But the people know in their hearts that journalism is a conventional art like any other, that it selects, heightens, and falsifies. Only its nemesis is the same as that of the other arts. If it loses all care for truth, it loses all form likewise. The modern who paints too cleverly produces a picture of a cow which might be the earthquake at San Francisco, and the journalist who reports a speech too cleverly makes it mean nothing at all. THE WORSHIP OF THE WEALTHY There has crept, I notice, into our literature and journalism a new way of flattering the wealthy and the great. In more straightforward times, flattery itself was more straightforward. Falsehood itself was more true. A poor man wishing to please a rich man simply said that he was the wisest, bravest, tallest, strongest, most benevolent, and most beautiful of mankind. And, as even the rich man probably knew that he wasn't that, the thing did the less harm. When courtiers sang the praises of a king, they attributed to him things that were entirely improbable, as that he resembled the sun at noonday, that they had to shade their eyes when he entered the room, that his people could not breathe without him, or that he had, with his single sword, conquered Europe, Asia, Africa, and America. The safety of this method was its artificiality. Between the king and his public image there was really no relation. But the moderns have invented a much subtler and more poisonous kind of eulogy. The modern method is to take the prince or rich man, to give a credible picture of his type, of personality, as that he is a business-like, or sportsman, or fond of art, or convivial, or reserved, and then enormously exaggerate the value and importance of these natural qualities. Those who praise Mr. Carnegie do not say that he is as wise as Solomon and as brave as Mars. I wish they did. It would be the next most honest thing to give their real reason for praising him, which is simply that he has money. The journalists who write about Mr. Pierpont Morgan do not say that he is as beautiful as Apollo, 
I wish they did. What they do is to take the rich man's superficial life and manner, clothes, hobbies, love of cats, dislike of doctors, or what not, and then with the assistance of this realism make the man out to be a prophet and a saviour of his kind, whereas he is merely a private and stupid man who happens to like cats or to dislike doctors. The old flatterer took for granted that the king was an ordinary man and set to work to make him out extraordinary. The newer and cleverer flatterer takes for granted that he is extraordinary and that therefore even ordinary things about him will be of interest. I have noticed one very amusing way in which this is done. I notice the method applied to about six of the wealthiest men in England in a book of interviews published by an able and well-known journalist. The flatterer contrives to combine strict truth of fact with a vast atmosphere of awe and mystery by the simple operation of dealing almost entirely in negatives. Suppose you are writing a sympathetic study of Mr. Pierpont Morgan. Perhaps there is not much to say about what he does think or like or admire but you can suggest whole vistas of his taste and philosophy by talking a great deal about what he does not think, or like, or admire. You say of him, but little attracted to the most recent schools of German philosophy, he stands almost as resolutely aloof from the tendencies of transcendental pantheism as from the narrower ecstasies of neo-Catholicism. Or suppose I am called upon to praise the charwoman, who has just come into my house and who certainly deserves it much more. I say, it would be a mistake to class Mrs. Higgs among the followers of Loisy. Her position is in many ways different, nor is she wholly to be identified with the concrete Hebraism of Harnack. It is a splendid method, as it gives the flatterer an opportunity of talking about something else beside the subject of the flattery, and it gives the subject of the flattery a rich, if somewhat bewildered mental glow, as of one who has somehow gone through agonies of philosophical choice of which he was previously unaware. It is a splendid method, but I wish it were applied sometimes to charwomen rather than only to millionaires. There is another way of flattering important people, which has become very common, I notice, among writers in newspapers and elsewhere. It consists in applying to them the phrase simple or quiet or modest, without any sort of meaning or relation to the person to whom they are applied. To be simple is the best thing in the world, to be modest is the next best thing. I'm not so sure about being quiet. I'm rather inclined to think that really modest people make a great deal of noise. It is quite self-evident that really simple people make a great deal of noise, but simplicity and modesty at least are very rare and royal human virtues not to be lightly talked about. Few human beings, and at rare intervals, have really risen into being modest. Not one man in ten or in twenty has by long wars become simple, as an actual old soldier does by long wars become simple. These virtues are not things to fling about as mere flattery. Many prophets and righteous men have desired to see these things, and have not seen them. But in the description of the births, lives, and deaths of very luxurious men, they are used incessantly and quite without thought. If a journalist has to describe a great politician or financier, the things are always substantially the same. Entering a room or walking down a thoroughfare, he always says, 
Mr. Midas was quietly dressed in a black frock coat, a white waistcoat, and light grey trousers, with a plain green tie and simple flower in his buttonhole, as if any one would expect him to have a crimson frock coat or spangled trousers, as if any one would expect him to have a burning Catherine wheel in his buttonhole. But this process, which is absurd enough when applied to the ordinary and external lives of a worldly people, becomes perfectly intolerable when it is applied, as it always is applied, to the one episode which is serious even in the lives of politicians. I mean their death. When we have been sufficiently bored with the account of the simple costume of the millionaire, which is generally about as complicated as any that could assume without being simply thought mad, when we have been told about the modest home of the millionaire, a home which is generally much too immodest to be called a home at all, when we have followed him through all these unmeaning eulogies, we are always asked last of all to admire his quiet funeral. I do not know what else people think a funeral should be except quiet. Yet again and again, over the grave of every one of those sad rich men for whom one should surely feel first and last a speechless pity, over the grave of Biet, over the grave of Whitley, this sickening nonsense about modesty and simplicity has been poured out. I well remember that when Biet was buried, the paper said that the morning coaches contained everybody of importance, that the floral tributes were sumptuous, splendid, intoxicating. But for all that, it was a simple and quiet funeral. What in the name of Asheron did they expect it to be? Did they think there would be human sacrifice, the immolation of oriental slaves upon the tomb? Did they think that long rows of oriental dancing girls would sway hither and thither in an ecstasy of lament? Did they look for the funeral games of Petroclus? I fear they had no such splendid and pagan meaning. I fear they were only using the words quiet and modest as words to fill up a page, a mere piece of the automatic hypocrisy which does become too common among those who have to write rapidly and often. The word modest will soon become like the word honorable, which is said to be employed by the Japanese before any word that occurs in a polite sentence, as put honorable umbrella in honorable umbrella stand or condescend to clean out honorable boots. We shall read in the future that the modest king went out in his modest crown, clad from head to foot in modest gold and attended with ten thousand modest earls, their swords modestly drawn. No, if we have to pay for splendor, let us praise it as splendor, not as simplicity. When I next meet a rich man, I intend to walk up to him in the street and address him with oriental hyperbole he will probably run away. End of section 7